This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Matthew, the book of Matthew, um, chapter 5, verse 21, will provide uh, at least part of the foundation for, our, for the Word today, and we'll be also looking at some other supporting scriptures. You know by now that um, my love for history continues to grow, and I was talking with my wife about that, and... and um, I, I said, you know what, honey, I, I think just the way that I've been teaching the Word has continued to change and evolve. She said, yeah, you have been bringing in a lot more history, and I think that history um, is just something that's been growing on me. And there's a story that uh, in, in history that I researched a lot this past week. It involves Alexander the Great. Uh, you've heard of Alexander the Great. He was one of the greatest military leaders in the history of the world by the time of his death at age 33, he had conquered for the Greek Empire most of the known world. In fact, they say that he had uh, that, that he held in his hands probably more power than any other human being has ever held, ever. Alexander had a dear friend by the name of Clytus the Black. Now, the name had nothing to do with his uh, with with his color, the skin color. They evidently gave him that name because. Uh, to, to distinguish him from another infantry commander called Clytus the White. But, but Clytus the, the Black and Alexander had been close friends since childhood. And even after Alexander became Alexander the, the Great after he ascended in, into power, they still remained close. In fact, during a battle in 334, Alexander the Great came under serious attack and, and, and his life was in serious danger he was in a hand-to-hand combat with two men. One of them was a Persian commander, um, and, and he was named Spithridates. And, and Spithridates had, had gained the advantage with Alexander the Great. Um, and uh, Spithridates was using a weapon called the hammer, uh, also known as a war hammer. And, and there were several varieties, several variations of this weapon, but but some of them looked uh, similar to, to this right here. That, that was the hammer, the war hammer. But, but during the battle, Spithridates saw an opening where he could pretty much finish off Alexander the Great. He had somehow in this hand-to-hand combat maneuvered himself behind Alexander. And, and he had a clear shot to his head. And so he lifted up his arm that, that held that hammer, that war hammer... And just as Spithridates began bringing down that hammer towards Alexander's head and no doubt would have ended his life, Alexander's friend from childhood, Clytus, was able to swing a sword at that arm and completely severed off that arm that held the hammer. Spithridates was killed and and Clytus saved Alexander's life and and more than ever solidified their friendship. But, but for all of the greatness of Alexander and, and all of the nations and, and armies he subdued, Alexander was unable to subdue his greatest enemy. And that was his temper. He would frequently become angry and, and lose control of his temper and do things that he immediately regretted. One such incident involved his good friend Clytus the Black. After a big victory in battle, Alexander the Great had thrown a big party and, and uh, for some of his closest friends and highest ranking generals, and they were celebrating that victory late one night, and 
the alcohol was flowing freely. And it so commonly happens when people are under the influence of alcohol, things began to be said, things began to be done that never would have been said, that never would have been done had the people not been drinking. And it started in, in such a classic way. And you, you've heard this story with just different names too many times, but Alexander's friend Clyde is very definitely under the influence of alcohol, said something that an also impaired Alexander didn't like. So Alexander, in response, threw an insult back to Clytus. Well, Clytus returned the insult back to Alexander. Now, in response to that, and, and this is a little bit humorous, but evidently, according to history, Alexander grabbed an apple that was on the table and threw the apple at Clytus's head. And, and I was so curious. I researched and researched, and I never did learn whether his aim was true if, if, he, hit his, uh, if, if he hit him with the apple. Um, but that apple being thrown escalated the situation, and it went from bad to worse. Alexander called for a dagger to take this skirmish to a new level. But those nearby that had cooler heads knew the close relationship between the two, and, and they refused to give Alexander the dagger. They restrained him, and they hustled Clytus out of the room. Well, so out of control with, with, with anger, and, and, and again, this is a little bit humorous to us, but Alexander was so mad, he called for his trumpeter to sound the call on the trumpet to summon the entire army to go after Clytus. But again, evidently those near him tried to defuse the situation and never issued the trumpet alarm. Well, in the chaos going on, Clytus, still very much under the influence of alcohol, was able to somehow get back into the room where a furious Alexander uh, was now just out of control. And he got in the room and he began to throw more insults Alexander's way. And Alexander had reached a boiling point and history records this, he grabbed a javelin, hurled it at Clytus, his aim was true, and it pierced Clytus's heart, and that night, Alexander the Great, out of control with his anger, killed his best friend in the entire world. Now, after his anger had dissipated, after he slept off his drunken stupor, it began to settle in on him what, what he had just done. He had just taken the life of his buddy, his childhood friend, the one who had saved his life in hand-to-hand combat against the Persian commander Spithrodates. And, and, and history records this. He was so distraught. In fact, over the next few weeks, history records he did nothing but sob. And he's rumored to have exclaimed, I've conquered the entire world, but I can't even conquer my own soul. Now today as we continue our sermon series on the seven deadly sins, you've guessed it, but we're going to talk about the deadly sin of anger. And I know again some of you, you're, you're trying to skip out on the day that we talk about gluttony. But I'm telling you, it will be a surprise the angels don't even know when I'm going to speak on the sin of gluttony. God knows, but the angels don't know. It will be a surprise. But really, when it comes down to it, our topic today will probably be even more convicting than the sin of gluttony. Because I think there are a lot of people who, 
even though they may not have reacted as violently as Alexander the Great, yet they're in a daily struggle with anger. And from the outside looking in, it appears they have it all together, but, but it doesn't take much, and their anger is unleashed. Sometimes it leads to, see if you've ever done this, it leads to doors being slammed, walls being punched, people being chewed out, or maybe slapped or punched. It leads to jobs being quit on the spot. You get mad at the boss and say, you take this job and, and definitely not love it. It leads to friendships and family relationships being severed to where they can no longer be in the same room together. It leads to car accidents because their anger has taken away their ability to drive with control. Anger brings about murders, divorces, computers being thrown across the room. I've seen the videos, you have too. It leads to basketballs being thrown at players, tennis rackets being smashed, employees being fired on the spot, people dropping out of church. It leads to four-letter words, profanity being unleashed simply because people can't control their anger. Now, again today, we'll be in Matthew chapter 5. You'll recognize this scripture as part of the most famous sermon that Jesus ever gave. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. Let's break into the middle of that sermon in verse 21. It reads like this. Jesus says, you have heard that the law of Moses says, do not murder. If you commit murder, you're subject to judgment. Now, as Jesus was preaching that day, whenever he made that statement, you know, if you murder someone, you're going to be subject to judgment. I imagine there were people that said, amen, preach it. Because we tend to say amen to those things that we're not guilty of. But Jesus goes on, verse 22. But I say, if you're angry with someone, oh, did you catch that? If you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. Now, that gets a little bit closer to home, and, and I doubt if there were very many amens on that statement. You know, Jesus said, if you're angry with someone, and more than likely the context is that the person has got mad at someone, they're mouthing off at them, which most of us on occasion would have to say, uh, guilty gets pretty close to home. But Jesus isn't done yet. Look what else he warns about. He says, if you call someone an idiot, uh-oh, someone on the way out of the early service, they said, what, what am I going to call my husband now? And the actual Greek word here is raka, and, and some translations put this as, as idiot, others translate it as fool. Now, I'm sorry, I'm a pastor, and I know I'm supposed to be perfect, I'm, I know I'm supposed to be able to walk on water. Sorry to disappoint you that I'm not perfect, and I, I really can't walk on water, but I love this word raka, and I should love it, but I do, because I, at times I want to use this word to describe different people, because the Greek word raka Here's what it really means. If you go back, and you can fact check me on this, it means, oh, empty-headed one. <laughs> Isn't that an awesome word? And then it also means uh, worthless one. So, 
So, so Jesus says, you know, if you call someone raka, which, oh, empty-headed one, or worthless one, or, or, or idiot, or fool, you're in danger of being brought before the high council. Now, why are you in danger of being brought before the court? Well, probably because of slander, defamation of character. I mean, you call them an idiot or a fool, and so they might take you to court for slander. But Jesus still isn't finished. Um, he goes on and says, and if you curse someone, uh-oh, if you curse someone, and again, some translations say if you call someone a fool, and, 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 and again, this is super interesting. I, I wish that we all knew Greek really well because there's so much insight in, into the original language in which the New Testament was written, but, but this particular Greek word is not raka. It's moray. And, and if you happen to look up the meaning of the Greek word moray, you'll find that it, here's what that word means, dull, stupid, blockhead. I'm serious. You can fact check me on that if, if you'd like. I, I'm, I'm not making this up. So, so two new words, you probably shouldn't add them to, vo- to your vocabulary, raka and moray. But, but, but of course, the, the context here is not calling someone a blockhead in fun. The, the context is that someone is mad and they're throwing out derogatory names. You know, you're a fool, you're an idiot, you're empty-headed. Then it goes on and says, if you do that, you're in danger of the fires of hell. Whoa. Now, honestly, after reading that, here's what goes through my mind. It's like I want to raise my hands. Wait a minute, Jesus. Tell me out. Maybe you misspoke there a bit. You know, preachers are guilty of that. They get a couple of amens, and it eggs them on. And before they realize, they've exaggerated a little bit and maybe even overstated something. And, and so I want to say, Jesus, maybe you got caught up in the moment, and you got a couple of amens, and so you went a little bit too far, overstated it. But, but because surely you don't really mean that when someone gets mad and calls someone a fool or an idiot or a, a blockhead or empty-headed one that that will subject them to the fires of hell. Je- Jesus, you're going to have to explain that before I can say amen on that one. Well, I think there are a couple of reasons why Jesus is so hard on the sin of anger. First of all, Jesus knew that anger many times doesn't stop with simple name-calling. Anger is almost always the reason that arguments escalate beyond just a simple exchange of words. Anger can take an argument where we're calling each other names, you know, idiot, moron, blockhead, and and of course today the names that people call each other, many times they're laced with profanity, but if it just stopped with words, it wouldn't be such a big deal. But anger many times takes us beyond simple name-calling. Just as an example, we have several law enforcement officers in our church, and by the way, we honor them. We honor our law enforcement officers. We thank them for our, our service to keep us safe, and they may not be perfect, but I'm not either, and, and, and you're not either, but we honor them. Yes, we honor our law enforcement officers. I thank God for you. But one of them was telling me about a traffic stop that he made some time ago, and he didn't share the name, so he wasn't violating any ethical conduct. But, 
this officer caught a guy on his radar gun that was doing 60 to 70 miles an hour, which doesn't seem so bad, except it was on a street that had a posted speed limit of 25. So he turned on his lights, chased him down, and, uh, and the guy stopped, and he was just in a foul mood, and, and he finally admitted that he had been in an argument with, with his girlfriend. And it escalated. He jumped into his truck and flew down the street and, of course, was rewarded with uh, some flashing lights behind him. And so it went from a simple disagreement to an argument to him flying down a road doing three times the posted speed limit. And who knows what happened after his bad day just got worse after being stopped by a highway patrolman. Maybe he took it out on someone else. I don't know. So, so Christ knew that, that anger many times didn't stop with simple name-calling. It progressed on to other sins and crimes that were much more serious. And so I, I believe Jesus felt that he needed to help us nip our anger before it even got to the name-calling stage. And that's the first reason that I believe Jesus was so hard on anger that resulted in name-calling. The second reason that I believe Jesus was so hard on anger is because unresolved anger is a spiritual issue that will destroy us from the inside out. You see, anger hurts the person more who has the anger than the person who receives the brunt of the anger. In, in fact, the philosopher Seneca described anger as an acid that can do more harm to the vessel in which it is stored than to anything on which it is poured. And so if I can't deal with my anger, I'm the one who's going to pay the price. Physically, emotionally, it will take its toll on me. Not to mention that people are not going to want to be around me. Nobody wants to be around an angry person. Now, before we go any further, would you all just look up front here a second? Because I, I, I think realistically there are probably some of us here this morning who are angry. We struggle with anger. Some of you may be angry at a specific person, maybe a boss or a former boss. Maybe you're angry at a friend that let you down or a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse that betrayed you. Maybe the anger is towards this church or another church that did you dirty. And then they're, they're, they're just angry at everything. And everyone walks on pins and needles because they know that they're like a volcano ready to erupt. And so today, we're going to look at five possible responses to anger. And I would just encourage you to take your bulletins and uh, open them up, that front flap, and you'll see a place where you can take notes. And uh, my wife showed me that she took notes in the early service, and I'm so glad that she did. But anyway, I, I would encourage you to take notes in, in the bulletin. Here's the first way I can respond to my anger. I can satisfy it. That means I don't get mad. I get even. And just being honest, there's something humanly satisfying about getting revenge. Now, now that feeling only lasts temporarily, but, but doesn't it feel good to give someone a dose of their own medicine? Someone stabs me in the back, I'll stab them back. Some, someone gossips about me, and, and you know, I may be a little bit more spiritual because I may say, bless their hearts. It makes us feel better about that. You know, we think we can get by by trashing them because bless his heart just makes it sound so spiritual, but... Remember, God doesn't fall for those kinds of games. Now, the problem with satisfying my anger is that I repay a wrong with a wrong, and by doing so, I push God out of the picture. 
look what revenge, or uh, revenge, uh, Romans chapter 12, verse 19 says, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. So vengeance is God's job, and if we try to get revenge, we're taking God's job away from him. And when we do that, it creates a cycle of ugliness and sometimes a cycle of violence in our relationships. The second response to my anger is, I can express it. This is where people will yell, sometimes curse at the person who cut them off on the road. This is where we lose our temper and punch a wall, or we go play racquetball and hold the ball in our hand before we hit it and say, this is so-and-so, and we smash the tar out of the ball. And, and there are some therapists that actually encourage this behavior. And, and our society actually glorifies the fact that we stood up for ourselves. You know, I told them the way it was, and, and I let them have it. We brag about the fact that we're not going to let anybody run over us. And yeah, let them know. And I used a few choice words in our society. said, yeah, you go. Here's a question for you. How often do you lose your temper and let someone have it? Did you know that recent studies show that women lose their temper an average of three times a week? Shame on you, women. Three times a week you lose control. And, but did you know that that same study shows that men lose their temper an average of six times a week? Shame on you, men. And I know some of you are wanting to elbow the person sitting next to you. You're thinking they're above average <laughs> and overachievers in the area of losing their temper. But three times a week for women, six times a week for men, losing our temper is pretty major. Look what Proverbs chapter 15, verse 18 says. And let's read this verse out loud together on, on, on the count of three. One, two, three. A hothead starts fights. A cool-tempered person tries to stop them. That's Proverbs 15, 18. So when it comes to anger, I can satisfy it. I can express it. Number three, I can displace it. This is where I take my anger out on someone else. Maybe an innocent person that has nothing to do with it. And that's why today, I don't know if you've kept up in the news, but anger rooms are such a big deal. You'll, you'll go and pay $25 for five minutes to destroy something. Or if you're destroying something valuable, up to $245. And you go in for just a few minutes, and a lot of times the, because of liability, they will actually uh, you know, kind of robe you up, put a mask on you, and um, you know goggles on you, and they'll give you a baseball bat or something, and you can just go destroy a computer. Or, or uh, for me, I'd like to destroy a copy machine. Um, and, uh, you know, so we displace our anger. And, you know, sometimes this is the way it happens. You're at work, your boss yells at you, it makes you angry, you go home and yell at your spouse. Your spouse gets angry, turns around and yells at your kid, and your kid gets angry, turns around and kicks the dog, and the dog gets angry, turns around and goes after the cat, and that cat gets angry, whatever it does, claws the furniture. And, of course, none of that is fair. I mean, think about it. Your cat gets punished by the dog because you got yelled at at work. That's displaced anger. You know, sometimes we take our anger out on our car. Poor car. We slam the door, gun the engine, spin the tires. 
And again, sometimes I've wanted to take out my anger on our copy machine. Honestly, our copy machine is demon-possessed. I believe it sometimes. <laughs> I want to lay, not hands on it, but ball bat on it. <laughs> Ecclesiastes 7.9 says this, Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. And then the fourth way we deal with our anger is this, I can suppress it. Now, when we suppress it, we hold it inside. There are two different responses here. First of all, someone makes me angry, and I, I know I'm angry, but I grit my teeth, try to keep it inside. And... But the second response to suppressed anger is that we pretend we're not angry. I mean, we're pretending. You know, we're, we say, ah, I'm good. You know, it didn't bother me at all. I forgave them a long time ago. But everybody knows they haven't. Um, please understand that if, if we allow anger, even a little bit of anger to settle in our heart and we don't deal with it, it will eventually surface and hurt us and hurt the people that we care about. Ephesians 4.26 says, do not let the sun go down while you're still angry. So some of you, you need to stay up late. <laughs> because the anger is still there. Do not give the devil a foothold. So before you go to bed tonight, think about any anger that you have in your life. Do your best to get rid of it so it doesn't take a foothold in your life. Well, the first four ways we, we can respond to anger are wrong ways. You know, satisfy it, express it, displace it, suppress it. But the last response is the right way. I can also process it. You know, unresolved anger and hurt and short temper, it's a spiritual issue. And God wants you to give it to Him. Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all you who, are, you who are weary and carry heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. For, for some of us here today, our burden is our anger. We don't like it. And we've tried and tried. I don't like it that I lose my temper. I don't like it that I slam the door, but I just do. And Jesus says, Come to me. Bring it to me. Now, for the remainder of our time together, let's look at four steps in the process of dealing with anger. First of all, identify what triggers my anger. Now, for those of you that uh, have a gun, you know that there's a little piece of metal, sometimes it's plastic or something, but it's called a trigger. Now, when we pull that trigger, it causes an explosion. That explosion propels a bullet forward in what could be a healthy or a deadly trajectory, depending on um, what you're shooting at. And so when we talk about what triggers our anger, the, the trigger is the person or the circumstance that causes an explosion of anger in our life. And, and that explosion causes us to say something or do something that can end up being very hurtful or damaging or even lethal. Now, here's what I want to explain is that it's not really the trigger's fault. When you pull the trigger on a gun, if that bullet hits something it's not supposed to hit, it's not the trigger's fault. And the same way, when we look at things or people that trigger our anger, don't go around and say, well, you know, so-and-so just knows how to push my buttons and they're, and they're, they're blockheads, they're empty-headed and you know, they trigger my anger, and, and it's their fault that I reacted like I did. It's their fault that I got the speeding ticket. 
in my haste to get away from them. It's not the trigger's fault. And yes, there are people that try our patience. They do push our buttons. But we can't go around displacing the blame. So, well, it's their fault because they did this and this. I, I just can't put up with them. They just caused me to do this. It's their fault. People that are under the control of the Holy Spirit should be able to control their anger regardless of what that person does to us. We may get agitated. We may get irritated. We may get frustrated. But as Proverbs says in 1911, it says, people with good sense, good sense, restrain their anger. They earn esteem by overlooking wrongs. And so one of the keys in controlling our anger is to know what triggers our anger so we can be ready and avoid those situations. So, so what triggers your anger over here? What, what triggers your anger? And by the way, Jesus teaches us that some anger triggers are positive. Jesus got angry towards sin. There, there are some good reasons to become angry. Aristotle wrote this. He said, anyone can become angry. That's easy. But to be angry with the right person to the right degree at the right time for the right purpose in the right way, that's not easy. And so knowing when to get angry is the question. One of the times to get angry is when there's injustice. And I hope that you will stand up for those who are not treated fairly. I, I hope you will stand up for the innocent. I hope you will stand up for those who are special needs. The innocent in the womb. The innocent that are being bullied at school or at work. Injustice should bring about some anger within us. But, but the problem is that most of the time, our anger is not triggered by injustice. It's triggered by selfishness. So let me just ask you some questions here this morning. What causes you to become more angry? Is it knowing that there are some kids in Eldorado Springs that live in homes where the adults scream at them and curse at them and leave them to fend for themselves? Or is it that person that pulls out in front of you making you hit your brakes? Which do you become more angry over? What causes you to become more angry? The person who blatantly uses God's name in vain? Or the cashier at McDonald's who seems to be so slow? Do you become more disturbed when you think about the 2,000 people or more in our town who don't know Jesus? Or do you get more angry when your friend says something that irritates you and sets you off? What causes you to become angry? You see, if we're honest, most of the time our anger is selfish. It's not about injustice. It's about convenience. It's because somebody hurt our little feelings. So identify the things in your life, the people, the situations, the circumstances, whatever it is that sets you off and triggers your anger. Number two, pause and pray when my temper is rising. Thomas Jefferson said this, when you're angry, count to 10. When you're very angry, count to 100. And if you're still angry, keep on counting. So whenever you're, you feel your temper rising, this may mean that you just leave the room temporarily so you can regain your composure before you say anything that might be ungodly. You know, there's a simple 
spiritual discipline that's called the discipline of silence. You see, our anger is usually expressed in hurtful and sharp words, and, and the discipline of silence is the best remedy. Now, this is not the silent treatment where we don't talk to them to show our anger, but if our anger is a problem, then the more we can learn to remain silent when we're angry, the less likely we are to say or do things that we might regret later on. Look at what Proverbs 15.1 says, and And let's read this passage out loud together on the count of three. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. You missed the three. I didn't say it, did I? But thank you for jumping in there. Now, pausing in the heat of the moment doesn't remove the anger. But it keeps you from complicating it by saying something foolish. You know, some people could count all day, all week, and they would get angry and angry. But that's why you must pause and then pray. So in the heat of the moment, just say a simple prayer. God, I, I can feel it. I'm, I'm starting to get upset. Would you help me control my anger? God, help me to remain calm. And God, don't let me say anything foolish. Thirdly, leave the vengeance to God and respond with love. You know, it's really hard to let our anger go. It's easier for us to take matters into our own hands. But the Bible speaks clearly to this in the passage that we referenced early, and we didn't read this early, but it said, if it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So it may not always be possible. There are some people that are just not not peaceful at all. But it says, do your very best. Verse 19, do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. And, and so it's God's job to deal with injustice against you. And, you know, if we begin to repay evil for evil... What's that going to do? It's going to begin a cycle, an ugly cycle of back and forth, like Clytus and Alexander, back and forth. And the stakes get higher and higher. We grab an apple and throw it at them. You see, this name-calling goes to another level. And the Bible says if you have to confront someone who has angered you, go ahead and do it with love. Go to them with love and show them they're wrong. But if you want to really get back at somebody who has treated you unfairly, love and kindness are much more likely to be successful than cursing them out. Now, that's what our society does. Tell them off. Curse them. You know, I told them. They didn't know what hit them. But that begins a cycle back and forth, back and forth. But kindness, whenever we, they do something ugly to us, we give them a bottle of cold water, we take them a plate of cookies, that kindness stops that cycle. That leads us to the last step. Repair the damage caused by my, my anger. 
You know, there are some of us today who we've already unleashed our anger on someone. It hurt them. It hurt our relationship with them. God wants to repair those broken relationships in your life because they have both spiritual and practical repercussions, right? Right after the, the, the part in the Sermon on the Mount that we talked about, anger subjecting us to judgment, Christ then says, so if you're standing before the altar at the temple offering a sacrifice to God and suddenly you remember you've come forward and, and you're wanting to give God a sacrifice of praise and, and you remember, oh, I, you know, this person and I were at odds with each other. God said, leave your sacrifice, go make it right, and then come back. You know, Jesus is saying, if your anger caused you to hurt somebody, don't try to cozy up to God. Don't try to snuggle up to God and say, oh, God, I want your blessings. I love you so much. Jesus said, go make it right first. You need to apologize You need to take care of it first before acting all spiritual. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons that we feel so distant from God because our anger has possibly caused us to hurt someone and we've tried to put it out of our mind, but God is saying, go make it right. The other part of this passage is very practical. Look at it in verse 22. But I say, if you're angry with someone, you're subject to judgment. If you call someone an idiot you're in danger of being brought before the high council, so the court. So, uh, you know, if you've gone off on somebody, if you've hurt their feelings, they may be getting ready to contact an attorney to take you to court. And so Jesus is just being very, very practical. He said, hey, if something is not right with somebody, go make it right before they take you to court. Don't put yourself in a place where you might have to go through an ugly court battle. I have in my hand um, a racquetball racket. I started playing racquetball um, fairly late in my life. I was, I was in my 30s, and really for racquetball, you need to start, if you're going to be really good, you need to start in your teens. And I started in my 30s and started playing in, in, in Bolivia. Uh, Bolivia was a pretty big racquetball country. At that time, they had 6 million people, but they were actually ranked number three in the entire world as far as uh, countries and racquetball. And, and um, I got to uh, become friends with uh, the national champ and got to play him a few times, and it, it, was, it was really ugly. He had a great time, but I didn't. Um, but this right here was the first good racket that I ever bought. Um, and, um, you know, I... Uh, I use this a lot, and, and, and again, you know, we played there in the Andean mountain range, eleven to 12,000 feet above sea level, so not too far from the top of Pikes Peak is where, you know, I played racquetball. But one day, um, while playing racquetball, I made a bad shot, and um, I was so upset at myself, and um, I took this racket here. And, and, and I banged it against the wall like this. Now, a racket... For those of you that know, they're, they're made to withstand a lot when you're doing it like this. And so you can kind of hit the wall, you know, after going to ball, sometimes you'll clip the wall, and it's pretty strong, the frame is strong, but when you go like this, it's pretty weak. It's not designed to take, uh, take that. But anyway, I, I, I was just so frustrated that day, and, and I, I, I banged it against the wall, and um, I... Uh, I, I, I was, uh, and, and this right here is not the top of the line racket, but it was a very good racket at that time. 
it was, uh, especially in Bolivia, where imported things like this were really pricey. But 35 years ago, I paid, I think, $150 for this. And this was when we were on a salary of less than $1,000 a month. And, but again, I, I hit it against the wall, and I happened to look down, and, and I know you can't, you can't see it, but uh, right here, there is a crack in the frame that goes all the way through. Um, I, I, I couldn't believe it. You know, I, I was a missionary, <laughs> pastor, preacher, and I trained pastors. I taught in our seminary. I taught in our Bible school, and I mentored pastors. And I had become so upset that I banged this and I broke it. 35 years I've kept this racket as a reminder of what anger can do. And thankfully, I've, I've never broken another racket in, in anger since then. But I, I just wanted to be transparent with you this morning to let you know that anger is a dangerous sin. And, and so that's so much so that Jesus said, don't even get to the name-calling stage. Because more than likely, name-calling just as it did with Alexander and Clytus, going back and forth, it escalates. So Jesus is trying to help us to nip it before we come to the point of, of, of calling someone a name and cursing them out. Jesus said, stop it before you call them an idiot or a fool or a so-and-so or a blockhead or, oh, empty-headed one. Jesus is trying to help us to understand we need to stop it before we ever get there because it will escalate. And thankfully, God gives us his power to where our anger can be tamed. God can take our anger and instead give us gentleness and joy, and he can tame the deadly sin of anger and replace it with peace. You know, Thomas Merton once wrote these words. He said, we're not at peace with others because we're not at peace with ourselves. And we're not at peace with ourselves because we're not at peace with God. So we're, we're, we're living in an angry world. It doesn't take very long. Just go to the store. We've all seen those people who just are going off on the poor teller or another shopper. Or We've all seen that. But I, I, I want to challenge us this week that we would begin to work on the anger. And I think there may be some here that need to go to someone because they've been angry at them. Relationship has been severed. Could I ask you, challenge you to go to them and, and listen, apologize. Don't say, well, you... You said this and it triggered me. It made me upset. That's why I reacted to this. No, don't get into that. Don't justify it. Just say, I shouldn't have reacted as I did. Will you forgive me? And then there may be some of you that have an anger problem and you find yourself saying four-letter words or cursing. I'm not here to criticize you at all. I mean, how could I criticize you when I did what I did? But I'm here to just say that we can bring this to God and He can cleanse us. He can tame us. He can give us the power. So this week, could I challenge you to deal with the deadly sin of anger? Let's pray together. Oh God, I, I thank you for your word that uh, what incredible insight 
gave us in your word because, Father, we see it happen with our kids. They start into name-calling, and then they start kind of pushing each other around and then hitting each other, and Lord, we adults, we're no better. We, we do the same thing. We, we start out by calling each other a so-and-so, and then it escalates, and it goes from there to something worse. And Father, I, I thank you that you understand humanity, and so you gave us very specific instructions to just stop it. And Father, I pray that you would help us this week as we go and maybe resolve some issues, as we fix some relationship issues, some ways that we hurt people, some ways that we destroyed relationships. God, would you help us to just go and apologize, ask forgiveness? And God, I pray that those times that we feel that anger rising. And Lord, if it's this study is right three times a week with women and six times a week with men, God, I pray that during those times that we would just say, oh God, I need your help. I feel it coming. And Lord, would you replace it with peace? Lord, give us the tools to where we can gain control. And Lord, the fruit of the Spirit is just love and joy and peace and patience, gentleness, goodness, meekness, self-control. And God, I pray that you would give that to us. So Lord, thank you again for your word as we go from here this week. Lord, help us to live holy lives, sanctified, following you. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.